Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I think it's hard for a lot of people not to notice that there's a serious problem with the American workforce, that there's a serious problem about the way that we go around hiring people into our most important institutions, the way we admit people to college, the way that we look at those that are prospective hires in our corporations. And one of the big problems is obviously the DEI regime. We are no longer picking the best candidates. We are picking people based on their immutable attributes. And this is causing a serious problem when it comes to investment, especially among white men in our working population. And so I wanted to invite Jeremy Carl. He's got a new book that's going to be coming about coming out soon. He's a senior fellow over at the Claremont Institute. He just wrote a great piece about why white men are quiet quitting. Jeremy, thanks for joining me, man. It's a pleasure to be on, Aaron. Absolutely. Like I said, guys, we want to get into why this is such a problem, why this is something that is impacting every aspect of our society, the competency crisis, the ability of our military, all these different aspects. But before we do, I need to tell you it is your moral duty to go ahead and hire only the most base people using new founding. Hey guys, I need to tell you about today's sponsor, new founding talent. Look, we all know that the job market is a disaster right now. Based people can't find good companies to work for and good companies can't find anybody to get the job done. The competency crisis is very, very real. So how do we get these two incredibly important groups together? We need organizations like new founding. New founding has created a network of high excellence professionals who are seeking to join grounded American businesses. These are individuals, often in elite organizations, who are ready for a team and a mission that supports their values instead of working against them. Aligned companies are already using this network to hire high-trust, exceptional individuals who can match the culture and mission of their teams. So if you're looking for better employees to build a better world, you need to go ahead and apply for access to the New Founding Talent Network at newfounding.com backslash talent. You'll get connected with candidates who will build your business. That's newfounding.com backslash talent. Check it out today. All right, Jeremy. So a few years ago, I started seeing this phrase, quiet quitting, and all of these different magazines that started popping up. Very millennial phrase, I think, you know, uh, describing a phenomenon of people not being very invested in their jobs. While the phrase might be a little tired at this point, I think there is a lot of truth to it. I think that is a phenomenon we are seeing over and over again in our society. And you point out in your piece that white men particularly are now doing this. What is quiet quitting and why would white Americans find themselves investing in this or divesting, I guess? <laughs> yeah, well, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head. It's it's a kind of notion that you're just doing a variety of less pro-social behaviors that show kind of investment in the business or investment in your organization, largely because you may not think that's going to be reciprocated. And I think we've always had slackers at work of, for varying reasons, but I think kind of the email jobs growth that we had um, under the COVID regime sort of led to a little bit more of a, an epidemic of this because it was a lot harder to monitor employee behavior. But what we're really seeing and why kind of was was shamelessly using that phrase is that I think um, in the particular case I'm using it, it is when you look at our leading institutions, educational, military, et cetera, you're seeing white people kind of opting out and they're not kind of necessarily making a huff about why they're doing this, but the data doesn't lie and the numbers are pretty dramatic. 
So what areas do you think are seeing the biggest impact of this? If we start seeing a withdrawal of people, like you said, it's not that everyone is is no longer involved in these institutions, it's not that people aren't hired. Mm-hmm. It's not even that people aren't necessarily working, though. I think if we look at the workforce numbers, that's also a problem. But it's that it's that people are no longer investing themselves. They're no longer putting those hours in. They're not going to company events. They're not striving. They're not trying to build things. Why why is that happening and what sectors is that impacting the most? Right. Well, I mean, I think we're seeing it in a variety of ways and you're beginning to see leading indicators. I think one one area that got a lot of attention, excuse me, just recently was in the military where recruitment numbers over just a few years were down enormously among whites on the order of 40%. Uh, I, I mentioned the specific number in my article, I don't have it off the top of my head whereas every other group was basically flat. Now, that would obviously be really concerning for any group. We don't want any group to feel like they're not invested in protecting and defending the United States. But when you're talking about doing that with white Americans, that is the group that is most likely to be the quote-unquote tip of the spear, as they like to say in the military, uh, in terms of uh, the special forces are kind of top, top people. 80-plus percent of the special forces Uh, recruits in Iraq and Afghanistan were white. So when you're losing this sort of group disproportionately, you're losing people who disproportionately are the people who would have typically made up your elite soldiers or sailors. And so that's, uh, or airmen, and it's tremendously concerning that that's one really visible place that we've seen it uh, in a way that was just too big to deny. Yeah, I've got a lot of friends who are in the military, and they were sounding this alarm a long time ago. They said, look, this is a serious problem because people don't understand that much of our American military is now generational. It's families uh, you know, who have been in the service for a long time. You don't see a lot of people from the outside coming into the United States military, and that's its own separate discussion about the, the health of a society that, that kind of has this, uh, this kind of bifurcation. But you, you have a very small amount of people and, you know, the, these generational families that are going in and they are forming kind of the backbone of the front line of the military, that tip of the spear, like you're talking about those special forces. I think you mentioned the Navy SEALs, something being like 80 percent white. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of these people who are kicking in doors, not the guys who are refilling jets and, and doing paperwork and God bless them, you know, they're, they're doing hard work, too. I'm not saying they're not. But. The guys who are out there who are who are in the most combat effective roles are they're coming from Texas and Appalachia. You know, the, these are the people who are really filling those. And when you go ahead and start, you know, telling these people, well, you're the devil. Everything in this society is is that's wrong is because of you. You're the one that is just destroying the lives of every other American. They're probably less likely to go out there and kick in doors for a country that treats them that way. No, I think that's absolutely right. And um, Jesse Kelly, the who's a conservative talk show host, probably many of your your audience also familiar with him. He put up something on Twitter, and I, I quoted in the article where he he said, "Look, um, I'm not encouraging. I'm a veteran. I'm not encouraging my son to go in. And basically, all the guys I know who I served with are feeling the same way. Um, I have uh, one of my sons who's who's interested, and I haven't discouraged him." Uh, in any way. In fact, I, I want to encourage him because I think it's a patriotic thing to do, but he also is going in with his eyes open about the type of treatment that he is maybe willing to get that will be disparate. And um, he's kind of, at least at this point, in theory, as he's still in high school, you know, he's willing to kind of put up with that, but he may not uh, later, as, or as he goes on, he may not choose to stay in. And, and then you combine this with the fact that 
just I think the other day, a couple days ago, the military is like, well, how are we going to make up this shortfall? I know. Well, let's do a, a program for illegal aliens where they can get citizenship if they will go in in, in what is literally a great replacement of uh, Americans. And I think you tweeted out, I believe, something about this kind of being a late Roman Empire type maneuver by our regime that, that we're literally getting to the point where we're grabbing illegals and using them to replace Americans in the workforce. And I have a whole chapter in the, about the military in my book where I kind of go over the many, many ways in which both overtly and covertly uh, white American soldiers are currently being discriminated against. And, uh, you know, you kind of look at that and maybe you say, well, I can do something else with my time. Yeah, we, it really does feel like we're, we're let's get some of these Germanic people to come fight the rest of the Germanic invaders. And, and yeah, that'll, that'll be just fine. It's, I, have, I feel like I've seen this somewhere <laughs> right. before. Right? Great, great plan, guys. Uh, how could this possibly fail? But but it is amazing. You know, obviously, we had this effective purge of the military. And don't get me wrong. Again, I've got a lot of friends who are in the military and they've been saying this stuff has been going on for decades, that they've been slowly pushing conservatives out. They've been they've been changing over the the way that the military works a lot a lot less uh, guys who have seen a lot of frontline time and as flag officers instead we're getting a lot more guys who are very familiar with corporate boardrooms or you know diversity seminars and that's the kind of stuff that's been pushed down on the military for a while now but given the you know the the vaccine mandate allowed for this massive ideological purge of the American military. And you can say in one way, well, this is just a ideological purge. It's just a political purge, which is by itself already really concerning. That's a that's right. a terrifying thing that you're saying. Well, it's just that, uh, you know, that that's already <laughs> a, a very bad. But whether we kind of like to notice this or not, political pin, opinions tend to correlate very heavily with demographic groups. And so a purge sure. of conservative Trump supporting Americans in the American military is also de facto a purge of white Americans in the American military. And so sure. the fact that, you know, this process has been going on for a while, but we got that rapid acceleration and it happened right around the time. We also wanted to like start jailing political protesters and right. using the state security apparatus to crack down on voting and the ability to share information. It feels a little scary when your military is now going to be made up of people who are literally brought in to, to guarantee their citizenship instead of people who are there because their families have been part of this country for a very long time and are involved in generational recruitment because they were the front line of the American military back when it was pointed out at outward enemies instead of perhaps inward ones. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually one of the reasons why I think it's really important that if we, we get a President Trump, as hopefully we will in 2025, he does something with the military where there's some sort of mass offer to all these guys who've been kicked out for vaccine mandates to come back with full credit for time served or whatever. I mean, extra bennies, because this is a friend enemy distinction question. I mean, we've kicked out, regardless of your views on vaccine pro or con, but we kicked out some of the most conservative and patriotic people in the military. And we, we want to do is, is bring those guys back in and advantage them, uh, you know, versus uh, the folks who, who didn't. But, but as you also point out, this is highly correlated with, um, with demographics. So, 
We, so obviously we know the military is a big problem. We've seen the recruiting numbers. There's been a lot of stories yeah. about this. I mean, you know, not it's not America relevant directly to America, but I mean, Britain has literally floated the draft at this point to, to try to solve this problem. That's how much they've disincentivized their native population to, to join their own armed services. But what other sectors in the United States are we seeing this impact? Sure. Well, one that's sort of, it didn't surprise me because I knew it was going on in general, but until I really dug into the numbers, I hadn't kind of realized how extreme the gap was because, of course, the media, the, the regime media doesn't talk about it at all, is in academia, which is if you look at the numbers for white men um, who of a certain age who kind of have gone to college, maybe it's like 18 to 25. I can't remember again. I've got the numbers in my piece, but it's it's like 33 percent. And that's like one or two points higher than African-American or Hispanic men. And it's like 25 points lower than Asian-American men of the same demographics. But the difference is whites average SAT scores are much, much higher than um, African-Americans or Hispanics. So if you were expecting, I mean, it's it's really, you would expect a in a, in a totally racially blind system, you'd expect their college attendance numbers to be somewhere in between the sort of low 30s numbers that you're seeing for African-Americans and Hispanics and the 60% number or whatever it was that you're seeing for Asian-Americans, but you're not. You're basically seeing that number be almost as low as groups that on average are much less college ready than white Americans. What that largely suggests is we've got a huge number of college ready, college eligible white American kids who are looking and saying, you know, I just, I don't see the value for me or I don't see an opportunity. I'm even going over this. I'm my, my oldest is a high school junior. He, I'm not, I'm not saying he's explicitly putting this in racial terms in his own mind, but I think he's kind of looking at the scenario uh, in terms of what's being offered by a college education for somebody like him and, and maybe feeling like the value proposition is, is not there in the way that it, it used to be. And so it's a tremendous concern, but again, nobody's even talking about it. There is there is no regime media out there that is concerned about the dearth of qualified white men going to college. So, uh, you know, that's where we are. Yeah, and, and we see some of these instances pop up, right? You like you see a, a plane door blow off in the middle of a flight or you hear about train crashes. You know, uh, one of the things you brought up, brought up in the piece was medical school and, and the, the different sure. instance levels there. And we know at some level we're, we're as a civilization looking at a competency crisis and that crisis has to come when you're no longer choosing people based on merit, when you're no longer looking at objective standards for who is able to compete in a workplace, complete a job, be able to go ahead and bring about the essential services necessary for civilization to function. We have a very complex network of institutions that are necessary for to operate what is essentially a global empire. And when we go ahead and start picking people because of the way they look instead of the fact that they're actually able to learn, retain, and go ahead and deploy the skills necessary to do this complicated task, you can expect continuous degeneration. And like you said, it seems like we recognize culturally that this is an issue, but the media, of course, is very dedicated to making sure we never talk about why it might be an issue. And so therefore, it feels like the degeneration of the society just becomes part of life, a, a kind of a gray background, like almost a Soviet 
you know, a style of wasting away. Of, well, we just can't make bikes, bicycles anymore. We, we've just lost right. the technology of how to manufacture a car. It feels like we're, we're looking at that rather than acknowledging any of the serious parts of the problem. Oh, absolutely. And it is also a contagion. I mean, I, I started my career many, many years ago in the software business. And I remember them talking about how, you know, grade A software developers who are usually infinitely more, pro I mean, almost an order of magnitude more productive than sort of an average software developers, they want to work with other grade A software developers. So if you flood the zone with a bunch of mediocre people, they don't want to be there. And I, that is true. That is not just a unique thing to software. It's like any institution. I mean, I even look at this for like, why are Republican staffers uh, with some very honorable exceptions, but some of whom are friends of mine, why do they tend to be so, so mediocre? You know, it's because the environment doesn't really select for grade A talent. Grade A talent um, doesn't want to be around grade, grade C political hack talent. Um, and so that's, you know, it's a problem for us, even in the political realm. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, we've really gotten on this very, very dangerous sort of road for the U.S. to be on. And of course, this is not to suggest some, you know, perfect scenario a hundred years ago uh, where somehow there wasn't racial discrimination. Of course there was, right. But we, we quickly went from doing one type of racial discrimination that wasn't ideal to doing much more severe levels, arguably, of racial discrimination that's also far from ideal without ever stopping and trying to just sort of treat people according to their merits as job candidates or as soldiers or what have you. Yeah, I think that's really critical. And, and I want to dive into uh, into that with you at length, because I think that's that's really the meat of the problem that we're running into now is the way that we have institutionalized this vast system in, in maybe a way that never even existed back in the worst of Jim Crow. And people are going to balk when I say it. they're going to be like, how could you? But like, you know, once we dive into this, people are going to realize how important race has now become in every institution. It's the thing that everyone has to see at every moment of every day and every decision they make. And I think that really creates a scenario you're talking about where we're simply unable to function as a society because we're paralyzed and focused on this issue 24-7, unable to go ahead and pick people who can actually do their job because this is the only thing that we really care about. But before we dive into that, guys, real quick, I want to tell you a little bit about ISI. Universities today aren't just neglecting real education. They're actively undermining it. And we can't let them get away with it. America was made for an educated and engaged citizenry. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. They have fellowships at some of the nation's top conservative publications like National Review, The American Conservative, and The College Thinker. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next great generation of college professors. Through ISI, you can work with conservative thinkers who are making a difference. Thinkers like Chris Rufo, who currently has an ISI researcher helping him with his book. But perhaps most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that can help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at their various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. 
To learn more, go to isi.org. That's isi.org. All right, so Jeremy, I, I want to ask you this because I think a lot of people will look at what has happened and they're just thinking, how did we get here? Uh, most most people, I think conservatives, Republicans, they want to look at what has happened in the United States and they want to see what has happened as progress, right? We don't want overt discrimination holding down Black Americans arbitrarily. We don't want a legislative regime that goes ahead and oppresses people based on their skin color. They really want to reach for that idea that we are picking the best people, that we are choosing people entirely on their character and their merit, right? That these these are the things that are the, the, the core selection process for what we do. But as you said, it's becoming very clear that we have installed an entire architecture that has made race the most salient thing across every business, every nonprofit, every educational institution, every government, it doesn't matter what your institution is. It's required by law to be obsessed with race at every opportunity. And I think they, they look at this and they say, how could we possibly possibly have gone from one version of this that a lot of people say, okay, yeah, we need to walk away from this. This is not okay. But we have inverted this so thoroughly to the point where it's almost comical in, in in how we've created this funhouse mirror of discrimination against the population which was you know and still is just barely the majority of the united states yeah absolutely right and uh tucker actually made that that uh <laughs> precise point in the very kind blurb he gave for my book but um yeah it's it's a problem and i think you're right to focus a lot of attention on civil rights law there are folks like richard hanania who kind of point this out, I think, almost to the exclusion of some other things that I think are also important. But I do think that absolutely civil rights law as currently interpreted and, and particularly the accretive additions to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that happened subsequently, both in terms of administrative interpretation and from Civil Rights Act uh, renewals uh, or, or kind of additions in the early 1990s kind of turbocharged this, this problem. Um, so I do think that that's been really important. However, I also think the kind of the black pill, if you were, is it, even if we got fully rid of this, there would be a lot of institutions that I think still had a lot of problems because it's been so baked into our DNA. It's been so baked into our educational institutions and the way particularly younger people are taught, the way they think about things, that even without those sorts of laws, um, there we're still going to have problems. And in fact, uh, the uh, there is an interesting Supreme Court case because originally there was, <coughs> excuse me, a a case on disparate impact, which is the, a civil rights law in the 1960s. It was a Supreme Court ruling that um, said uh, that basically it was it was called Griggs versus Duke Power. Excuse me, 1971. And I believe it. It basically said, if you have a, a a test, and that test kind of ends up advantaging one race over another, even if there was no intention to do so, you have to kind of jump through all these hoops to show that it, it's okay for you to use. And so, of course, most people didn't do that. And then in the late 1980s, the Supreme Court kind of looked at this, and even the much much more liberal Supreme Court of that era said, "Whoa, you know, we went too far. This is." We've got racial quotas effectively. And so they, there was a case called Ward's Cove, and they basically did away with Griggs. 
um, effectively. They, they kind of changed the burden of proof. And then what happened was um, the business community pressured the, the George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, rather, excuse me, administration. And George H.W. Bush was not kind of maybe known for having the biggest spine on this or other issues to kind of say, hey, reinstitute this. And so a Republican regime, a Republican administration, rather, reinstituted this discriminatory law and actually codified it into the law, whereas previously it had just kind of been a Supreme Court judgment. And obviously that had legal force, but it wasn't the same thing as a congressionally passed law. So it sort of showed how people got used to this discriminatory environment. And then when you try to take it away, they actually rebelled against it. And that has had all sorts of deleterious effects uh, even to this day, again, I write about this in the book. And by the way, I mean, the Supreme, the conservative civil rights uh, attorneys at the time, and there were a few political appointees, they understood exactly how bad this was going to be when in the, they put this in the 1991, I believe, Civil Rights Act. Um, but there was just a lot of political pressure and the administration was not successful in resisting that pressure. Yeah, I think you're really right to point out that while this is very heavily a legal issue and this there is this entire racial superstructure built into our every institution that even if that was all to disappear tomorrow the narrative that undergirds this whole thing is still critical i mean you know we obviously have now a theoretically an overturning of some parts of affirmative action from the supreme court right sure. but we immediately look at the different educational institutions and they basically laughed at the supreme court they're like ah, that's nice we're just going to change everything to dodge this we've seen little to no change from almost every institution that is currently deploying these racial favoritism, racial bias uh, against uh, white uh, applicants. You know, you still have all of these different, uh, uh, all of these uh, uh, different internships and scholarships and things that are exclusive, racially exclusive. These things have not suddenly disappeared overnight just because some Supreme Court ruling came down. So while it's important to undo much of this legal architecture, I think you're right to say that this goes far beyond simply just going ahead and striking down a law or two or flipping a couple of Supreme Court rulings, because this is baked so deeply into the American identity at this point that it's going to take a whole different type of strategy to go ahead and make that turn around. That's absolutely correct. And in fact, you see this what what the what kind of getting rid of these legal strictures does is for the institutions, the few out there that don't want to cooperate with that regime anyway, now it gives them the excuse. So for example, you saw Missouri, as soon as that ruling came down, their attorney general, who was on top of things, eliminated race-specific scholarships in the state. He was able to successfully do that. But I don't know that I saw any other state do that, right? They either weren't on the ball enough or they haven't pushed it enough or whatever have you. And now you actually just recently, you mentioned this, I think just yesterday, the Supreme Court kind of declined to hear a case about merit admissions at the Thomas Jefferson High School of Science, I believe it's called in Virginia, which was a very elite uh, high school uh, that was clearly discriminating based on race. And um, this, the Supreme Court declined to review this. And they did so under what was and again, I haven't read the decision, so but I'm relying on this secondhand. So please, uh, Twitter conservative attorneys who have read it, don't don't come and shoot me. But but my understanding is basically the kind of decision was functionally like, yeah, we don't really want to explore how bad this is going to be. We're not going to set an outer limit, and if you can come up with some reasonable proxies for race that don't kind of look quite as blatant, then we might look the other way. And to their credit, 
Alito and Thomas, who are really the only two solid Supreme Court justices we have, you know, across the board, said, you know, Alito had this dissent where he's kind of like, this is outrageous. You know, this is exactly what we were trying to legislate against. And now we should just strike this down because it's clearly inconsistent with um, with our original ruling. But they couldn't get the other justices to go along with them. And so as a result, now you have this hole. And even if it's a small hole, you can bet that the Harvards of the world are going to drive a truck through it. So that's where we are. Uh, and it, it is a cultural problem. It is not just something we can't just law. Lawfare is super important. I talk about lawfare in my book and the importance of it. But it's just one step in a much broader set of things that we need to be doing. It's kind of terrifying that like Clarence Thomas and Samuel Lito are literally just holding American civilization aloft on their backs like Atlas. And if at any moment one of them decides to just shrug, it's all over. Yeah. Uh, but but here we are. Um, so th there's this is very complicated and I haven't gotten into your whole book yet. So uh, you'll 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 just be letting me know this one for the first time because but I'm interested in picking your brain on this. It feels like there's two critical aspects that we have here, right? The first, we're not allowed, I think, to notice that we have group differences that are repeatedly showing up in the data, right? And so when we look at merit-based admission, when we look at completely colorblind performance metrics, if anyone looks and takes off the color blinder for a second, they recognize that actually these things don't just equally distribute themselves across the American population. They have predictable, reliable results. And that fact means that if we go to a truly meritocratic system, the demographics of our institutions will shift rather significantly in ways that would be shocking to many, even conservative people. And yeah. I think that that outcome, even though it would be truer to what we say we want from our system, even as conservatives, is so scary for many people that they're unwilling to go ahead and engage with even the most basic implications of what they say is their own ideology, a system where people are judged by the content of their character and their ability rather than the color of their skin. Yeah, I think that's right, Or And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up because I think you're right that very few people, you know, the people like me who've kind of really looked at these numbers and maybe you and, and other people who get play, uh, you know, paid to be conservative policy nerds or maybe some of the liberal folks who don't want this to happen because they understand how bad it would be, uh, sort of understand the sort of extreme gradient of change that you would get if you went to a, a fully meritocratic system. If you were to ask me honestly, just putting on my political hat and not my legal hat with a gun to my head, like, how do I think it would be best for society to shake out? You're probably not even going to go full, truly 100% meritocratic. It just, it's not viable. But what you would do is you'd cut out the two thirds of the bottom, let's say, of the folks who really shouldn't be there, shouldn't get the job, shouldn't get the admission, just like aren't even competitive, but are only getting in there because or this position because of race. And then when you start dealing with the top 20, 30% of pretty much any group that would have already, you know, which is currently admitted or gets a job under our current system, there may be differences that you could look at and say, um, you know, gosh, you're still advantaging one group or the other, but 
in terms of social peace, the trade-off may ultimately not be worth it for that last 20% of purely meritocratic judgment. Now, from a legal perspective, obviously, I would like, or just from a personal preference perspective, I would prefer just a purely meritocratic system with the chips fall where they may. When I look at the reality of politics, and I don't just abstract in a nerdy way, um, I think that that is the most likely thing, where you still have pretty significant differences in terms of um, you know, the racial or other profiles in terms of people who are in senior positions in places, but it's not as extreme as if it were just completely race blind, because I think you're right, politically, especially in a democracy, I don't know that we can fully get there. And that's, by the way, one of the, the problems with trying to do this sort of racial bean counting in a continually greater diversifying population, because you put more and more pressure politically on uh, the system to adjust the numbers to look something like the current demographics. So, you know, that's harsh, but I think that's where, even though it would not be my personal preference, it would not be how I would do things if I were hiring, et cetera. But I think that's kind of a best case scenario or of where we'll wind up, which is we'll eliminate the bottom two thirds. I'm making that number up, but I think it's, it's good for argument's sake of pure diversity hires and the folks who are left, you know, maybe they won't be on average quite as good, but they're still going to be like pretty solid folks. And that's, that's just socially the way things are likely to work out. Well, and I, I think it's, this is why an immigration moratorium is so critical because the issues we're talking about right now are incredibly delicate. Like you can literally feel the live wire next to you when you're, when you're <laughs> talking about them. Right. Yeah. And that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be the way that we have to live our lives in the United States. But unfortunately, it's just really true. But we can't even begin to have these conversations, as you say, in a country that is constantly shifting demographically. What does one group owe to another historically? How do we manage these different debts, these, these, these historical relationships? How do we go ahead and codify this or, or find a way to, to, to go ahead and heal old wounds and, and forge an identity together and unify in some way if we don't have the ability to at least lock down and control what the nation looks like at this point. You can't actually have any discussion about any of this in reality. You know, for, forget, like you said, some kind of wild veil of ignorance, autism, but actually discussing it in, in, in political reality in the way that the groups exist today. You can't discuss that if we literally have one political party who is dedicated to just leaving the border open and letting in as many foreign people as humanly possible to shift permanently and explicitly the demographics of the country. How, how can you even have a negotiation without first completely locking down what we have here now so we can talk about these things in a realistic manner? No, that's absolutely right. And and it's that's a challenge. I think if there's one slight white pill within this kind of ridiculous demographic transformation that we're doing, it's that a lot of these other groups that are coming in are not as suffused with white guilt as white people are in this country. Right. And therefore they are less likely to tolerate being discriminated against just because of some claims of a historical reparation and the Broadway uh, being used against them. And that's interesting. One of the reasons why you saw California again, defeating affirmative action, California being a highly diverse state with tons of immigrants last year or the last election at the same time when 
when uh, the Democrats were sailing to huge victories. So I do think there are some opportunities, but but basically you need to stop. <laughs> I mean, I call for net zero immigration in the book, um, but but if you don't kind of get a handle on some of these issues more broadly, it's it's not a coincidence that the kind of almost cheesy American heyday of commercials that when you're trying to do you know this almost mocking 21st century look at at American life, you go back to the 1950s. Okay, and again, I'm not. There were obviously a lot of social problems in the 1950s, but that was also toward the end of a time, right before the Hart Seller immigration bill totally blew everything wide open, where we had very, very little immigration and a chance to socially recohere a unified identity among immigrant groups and a unified new American identity. I don't think it's a coincidence that it was at that moment that we had a much more um, sort of coherent social structure, more positive demographics. And I think really the key to doing that is to look, we're not going back to whatever the demographics of America were uh, 80 years ago, 100 years ago. It's not happening, right? So what we have to figure out is how do we Americanize this country that we have now into some sort of unified identity? And as you correctly say, the, the sine qua non of doing that is you've got to to shut the border. And of course, that's why the Democrats don't want to shut the border because they're happy to play racial politics from here to infinity. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if we're ever going to get a proper American ethnogenesis, but we're not going to get even close if we can't have a, at least a unified understanding of, of the field of, of where we are and, sure. and take stock. And, and that requires a level of stability that we are desperately actively destroying we are we are trying to yeah. avoid at all costs again for the political advantage of the left well the, the other thing that i think is is another landmine uh but i think we can't we just can't avoid if we're you know if we're going to look honestly at what's happening here is you know you, you pointed pointed out that you know many of the new immigrant groups have no problem you know they don't have that level of white guilt they don't have the problem of uh you know uh, feeling right. like they have to play some kind of uh, some some kind of blood libel tax for everything wrong with the United States and so they're not going to sit around and and take the same kind of crap that kind of your your squishy white liberal is however th you know th this has created the phenomenon inside the conservative new movement where we have to go like find someone of a slightly darker complexion to say something obvious right like this right. has kind of become right. the you know, and, and 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 you know, it's very embarrassing that this is a phenomenon that the that the conservatives, that the right Republicans, constantly engage with. It is like, oh, good, we have a Hispanic person to say that we need to reduce right. immigration. Oh, good, we you know we we have someone uh, from the African American community to say that crime is bad and we need intact families. Like this is, you know, this is something that is is very common inside uh, the right. And obviously, this is this also becomes an issue when we look, as you said at these different institutions, even when you get a positive change in a law, you get a, a Supreme Court ruling or legislative victory of some kind, you almost never have people willing to go advocate. You know, when when a law changes or a Supreme Court ruling changes in the favor of the left, they deploy thousands, tens of thousands of activists and lawyers. They, they descend like locusts on every piece of civic you know uh, machinery inside the United States and immediately stress to this to their maximum political advantage, right? Like this is yeah. why their machine is just so much better 
than the right because they're allowed to explicitly say, oh, this victory was just won for black people, for Hispanic people, for Asian Americans, whatever. And we're going to go, you know, force this and maximize this in every scenario. Obviously, Republicans can't do that. They can't say, oh, actually, we got rid of discrimination for white Americans and we're going to go make sure that white males are now proportionally represented in every one of these institutions. That That is something that will get you immediate accusations of only the most heinous names. And this feels like a very serious block because if this is the way our politics works, if leveraging these things to continuous advantage is the kind of thing that really is what turns the American political machine. But one group is not able to do that. And everybody else realizes that's like the key to, to, you know, having any kind of political power in the United States that kind of creates a serious issue when it comes to, you know, figuring out what we're doing inside our country. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you mentioned both of these things. Um, A, the Republicans never know they're, they're like the dog who caught the car and they have no idea what to do. We saw this so visibly with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, where in theory, we've been talking about this forever and we should have had a whole sensible legislative, you know, politically winning legislative and communication strategy ready to go. But we were so used, unused to winning on any substance that mattered, any issue that mattered, that in fact, we were caught completely flat-footed and the Democrats were able to reverse what should have been our biggest victory. And I think you know, we're, we're beginning to kind of finally write that ship, but only after a number of losses. But even more, I'm glad you mentioned this whole issue of getting the person a slightly darker complexion to say the thing that you want to say. This was something I really fought against. I make this point quite explicitly in my book, in writing the book, because I, as you can imagine, I got a lot of feedback uh, from friends and others, you know, when I told them I was going to write this book. And one of the most frequent was hey, that's great. I'm so glad you're doing this. Uh, that's really brave of you. It's really important that we talk about this. But boy, it would be great, better if Candace Owens did this, right? Or something. And I really like Candace Owens. I think she's she's great. And she's actually touched on these issues, right? But, but my broader point is no. Um, white people should be able to unequivocally advocate for themselves and for the, you know, and complain about the fact that, um, they're being discriminated against and that's not just and it's not American. And we shouldn't have to have somebody else making that point on our behalf. Um, that 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 is that in and of itself is a symptom of the problem that we have. And so I very much tried to get away from that notion that uh, I, yeah, I did get the feedback. Oh, well, somebody else should say it. Well, if, if you can't say it for yourself, then you're automatically coming from a losing position. And so I just started with the assumption that there is absolutely nothing wrong with me saying these things. There is absolutely no nothing wrong with white people pointing out what is going on in this country and that it is profoundly to their disadvantage and that it is profoundly unjust and demanding something better and organizing for something better. Yeah, I think when you have an entire academia, when you have corporations that explicitly hold seminars saying be less white, purge whiteness, whiteness is destroying culture. I mean, this is this is this is blood libel. That that's the kind of rhetoric that is being thrown around out there. And if you can't acknowledge that, if you're just gonna sit around and be like, don't want to roast any feather feathers why people say that, you know, I'm I'm some kind of parasite that should be eradicated from society, it's like yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen this play out before. I, you know, I'm not. I'm, right. I'm a bit of a student of history, and this seems like a 
like a very bad place to be in, in, in any given society. And you should probably be aware of that. But uh, but yeah, Jeremy, I, I'm excited to go ahead and dive more into the book. I think it's really important. I think it to- it's a topic that only that while incredibly difficult is only becoming more important. And we're just not doing ourselves any favor by ignoring it. A lot of people want to create proxies for this. A lot of people want to di- dodge this subject. But it is it is critical that we be able to engage in this and do so in a kind, respectful, uh, you know, and thoughtful way, but still doing it in a way that that is addressing what is a critical issue. Because if you don't do this, it's it's only going to get worse, and uh, it, the the uh, the outcome is going to be terrible for everybody. We don't want people quitting society. We don't want people walking away. You know, we need everyone contributing to the United States. We need the best. We need the brightest. And and we can't have a society like that if we've decided to single out one group and say, you're not allowed to compete because of the color of your skin. Absolutely. And this is a, a key point you make. And again, I, I make it again, almost close my book with it to say that um, this is not about what's best for white people, although that certainly is a component of it, but it's what's best for America. Like it's bad for everybody of every race, of every background, if we're not treating people in as fair and as colorblind a manner as we possibly can. And again, I'm not naive about realities. Those things are are always going to be there. But but if we're not at least aiming toward that goal, if we're not at least calling out that, no, you don't get to stigmatize whiteness or talk about white guilt or this and that, um, this is kind of a baseline for, for where we need to be in this country. And one of the things that does encourage me, I started writing this book a year and a half ago, and a lot of the stuff that I felt like when I started to write the book and when I made the proposal to my publisher, I was like, whoa, you know, pretty high, high wire here. No, doesn't look like there's any net down there. Um, now, just even in the last 18 months, I think I'm seeing a lot more people, of all, again, of all backgrounds, who are speaking up about this and are saying, yeah, this is wrong and who are not afraid to go on X or a place like that where with their very big audiences in many cases much bigger than mine and call out anti-whiteness for what it is, uh, say that we shouldn't be putting up with this in society to kind of point us in a better direction. And so I'm actually very, I don't know that I'd say I'm hopeful um, per se over the long run, but I'm really hopeful that at least over the next decade, this conversation is going to become much more honest, much more real, and then hopefully we will correct and, and find ourselves in a little bit better place. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you have people like Charlie Kirk, you have uh, people like Matt Walsh, you have guys with with massive platforms out there who are saying, look, you know, we, we can talk about this like adults. You know, it, it's time for us to have this conversation. The hour is too late. We cannot sit around and pretend like this isn't an issue. And I, I agree with you. I think that's an incredibly important step because, uh, again, it's, it's just no one has done any favors of no, no American of any, of any race race or any background has done any favors, uh, by, by pretending like the regime that is currently, uh, installed, you know, the, the way that, that people are handled in the current hiring system, in the current, uh, institutional and legal system, pretending like any of that is okay. It's not. And, and people do need to be able to talk about that. All right. Well, we're going to transition over some questions from the people, but Jeremy, before we do, I'm sure the book is, is available for pre-order. Can you tell people where to find it? Sure. Uh, the book is called The Unprotected Class, uh, How Anti-White Racism is Tearing America Apart. Uh, you can find it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the places online. It'll be out in April, uh, but it is available right now for pre-order. And I, as a side note, um, look, I, of course, I'd love people to order the book and read the book. 
I'm not getting rich off uh, your purchase of the book. Trust me. I, I wish it were true. Uh, but what you do do is if, if you're finding this type of conversation valuable, even if you think, well, gosh, I really wish you'd made this point or this point or made it differently. The way that we send a message to the mainstream publishing community, and I do have a, a very mainstream publisher for this, that these issues are important and that we should talk about them is if they see that people are buying books about this. That's, a, That's right. the best signal that they can get that, oh, actually there's an audience that cares about this, that wants to do it, that that, that wants to um, advance the discussion of these issues. So uh, if you think that e this even might be of possible uh, interest to you, I'd certainly encourage you to buy a copy and read it. And you can even, once it's uh, out, uh, you can give me direct feedback through that or through my uh, my Twitter profile, Real Jeremy Carl, or my new Substack, uh, The Course of Empire, which is jeremycarlet.substack.com. Absolutely. All right, guys, let's go ahead and head over to your questions. Krupa Weirdo says, we could totally have a government run by foxes, guys. Yeah, we've uh, we've been stuck in Pareto's fox world for quite a long time. That's why the military is uh, in the shape it is in right now. And unfortunately, that might be the case for a little while longer. Uh, Krupa Weirdo says, also, uh, you'll feel so silly when we put the woke away or it's happening even now. Uh, you just don't want to see it. There are white boys in the army ads. Yeah, for I think most people who watch the show are familiar, but I don't know if you know, Jeremy. I'm, I'm in a showdown with a friend of mine, Neva Par Parvini, on whether or not uh, the, the woke will be put away, whether we will abandon uh, kind of the, the blatant diversity propaganda constantly everywhere. Uh, my, my bet is no. But uh, what, what do you think about that? Uh, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I'm, I am optimistic that we can actually put together a winning coalition. Uh, I'm not I'm not black pilled. I'm not accepting defeat. If I if I did, I wouldn't have written that this book. But I do think I agree with with Frederick Douglass, who basically said, you know, power does not concede anything without demand. Like that's the bottom line. You have to show them that there is a certain place that they can they are not allowed to push you, and that if they do, we're going to push back even harder. I kind of talk about this in my book and the idea of the the kind of Cold War idea of mutually assured destruction which we used to navigate our nuclear arsenals with the Soviets and in, encourage folks to say, you know, hey, maybe we're not going to fire these things because it'll lead to the entire destruction of the world if we do so. That's where we need to be, not with the literal destruction of the world, but with the social fabric of the country um, on some of these issues involving race, where we need to make it really clear that when the Democrats engage in these blatantly anti-white racist sorts of strategies, that the payback is going to be so immediate so painful for them that they will cease and desist from doing so. Um, and I think if they do that, maybe it's a certain point, not everybody has to love each other and sit in a circle and say kumbaya, but they can kind of say, hey, um, you know, maybe we should just let this sleeping dog lie and try to treat everybody equally and fairly. And that'll probably be the best outcome for everybody. And I think that that is achievable, but we've got to be, we've got to be, as Donald Trump might say, we, we have to be a lot tougher. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, let's see. We have uh, Zas Splash, I think is the right way to say that. Uh, just pre-ordered Oren's new book. A reminder to everyone to support your friends. Looking forward to getting my copy. God bless. Well, thank you very much, guys. Yeah, I also have a book obviously coming out. Uh, the Total State, it won't be out till May, though. So, so you'll have plenty of time. You, you can read Jeremy's book, and then you can move on to mine. You'll have an excellent back-to-back -back reading experience. Uh, but, of course, mine is also available for pre-order if people would like to do that. And I'm looking forward to reading that. Absolutely. Thank, appreciate it, man.
Uh, let's see. Uh, bend over. Uh, excellent. Uh, only the best audience I have here in on the Or McIntyre program. Uh, I was in the uh, Army uh, Army Infantry uh, the last half of the 2000s, and all combat units were over 80% white. I'll tell anyone who asked me about joining to stay out, Christ is King. Yeah, uh, Ben, like you said, I, I have heard the same thing from many of my friends who are in the military. That's That's pretty consistently... Uh, the case and so when you go ahead and racially bias your military in this way you absolutely destroy its effectiveness there, there's simply no reason to do this other than you know if you're attempting to uh, create a military that is uh, not maximally combat effective against your foreign enemy yeah and when we wind up with an aircraft carrier sunk at the bottom of the sea we're going to realize it's a problem that's jesse kelly has used that metaphor a lot to talk about our uh, concerning direction the military is heading on these issues there, there is, uh, there's a very real moment of, uh, is that our Chernobyl, you know, or something yeah. like, like when, when America's ability to project global power suddenly just, you know, completely collapses when people realize we're not competent enough to, to keep this, this, you know, Herculean feat of, of running these destroyer or these uh, carrier groups around the globe. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the phrase used, uh, um, a, a geopolitical run on the bank. Maybe yeah. you may even be seeing it right now, right? Where suddenly people realize that all this bluster that we've had about trying to be everywhere and maximally everything and turn up the weapon shipments of weapons that we don't have with money that we don't have up to 11, um, uh, that that in fact, we get our bluff called, we get our butt kicked a couple of times, and then we have no credibility anywhere as opposed to really figuring out where our strategic interests lie, our core strategic interests, and organizing our force so that we are defending those with the maximum seriousness and credibility. I'm trying to remember which country it, it I saw some, some article about where one country sent like the few remaining artillery pieces they had left to Ukraine. And it's like, man, there's just no better, no better uh, way to just explain the travesty that is kind of our global situation where people are like, yeah, I'll just give away, you know, uh, you know, I'll give away what's left of the, the few things I have for my, nation's own defense of its own people just so i can throw this into a war that is absolutely not going to be won by ukraine and is really just a, this this way to fund defense contractors and kind of attempt to to punish uh you know the the political enemies of some of the deep state at, at, at amazing thing to watch really is uh let's see tiny rick here says white pill my direct experience in the insurance industry small companies less than 100 people has been free of dei everyone on team is a dei refugee from one of the insurance mega corporations yeah this is something i actually wanted to touch on so thank you tiny rick for for bringing this up because i actually i forgot to bring this up uh one of the effects that's going to happen here right is that if all of these competent people are quiet quitting large corporations major institutions these kind of things that talent, I mean, a lot of these people will just end up playing video games, I guess, but some of that talent's going to go into unorthodox places, right? We're going to see these surges of talent in institutions that are, or in places that are not major institutions. That's got to shift some of the energy, right? That, that's got to be a vibe shift where all of the best talent is no longer concentrated in these massive Fortune 500 companies. We're not just grinding IQ into the finance industry but we're actually seeing it go to places that it otherwise wouldn't be welcome and, and create new and interesting things. Absolutely. And I'll give a, a free plug for your early sponsor, new founding uh, my friend, Nate Fisher and team doing that. I think this is a, a great example of a kind of 
attempt to, to grow aligned businesses as he, he sort of diplomatically, I think they put it in their advertising, but really to kind of, you know, find non-woke people who are very talented, who'd like to work together and certainly encourage your, uh, your listeners in the job market to go out uh, and look there or to post uh, jobs there. But I think also what you're, you're touching on, I think you will see more and more movement towards some of these smaller groups and out of the megacorp, you're going to see more talent um, migrating to some of these places that are not infected by DEI. And in the best sort of case scenario, of course, this would proliferate and these small companies would eventually become the big companies and have the best people and, and take over the industry. I do have a slight concern, even though I think that's a very positive development and I don't want to discourage in any way. I think it makes sense. And that when I look at my own boys, I think they're kind of, to the extent they're thinking about their careers in high school, they're, they're almost implicitly thinking that way. Um, but kind of totally abandoning all of the elite corporations that are still going to be elite probably for a while has its own dangers. And I'm not willing to, you know, we've totally lost academia. And it's not clear to me the fact that we are going to offer a better education at the University of Austin or at Hillsdale or whatever really totally makes up for the fact that we don't have anywhere in the Ivy League, right? So I think it's great that folks are DEI refugees and finding and, and starting their own businesses. And that's wonderful. And I want to encourage that. But I don't think it totally solves the broader problem of the fact that the leading institutions have been so corrupted. Yeah, that dovetails a little bit into Tiny Rick's other comment. In the long run, legitimate talent prevails. That said, how much more medical malpractice or air disaster are we in for in the short run? Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. And to some extent, that's true, right? Eventually it will win out. But that doesn't mean that like certain systems can't collapse in the meantime. Uh, the, the truth is that we're, you know, we are, we are deep into the problem of Pareto's uh, kind of circulation of elites. We are not bringing in new talent. We've completely ostracized a, a clear uh, section of the population that, that needs to bring new blood in to, to go ahead and renew what's left of, of kind of the United States. And because we're not doing that, you know, the, we, we are going to have these system failures. And I don't think people are going to change those ideas until we see really serious uh, consequences. I, I wish that wasn't the case, but if I'm, if I'm making kind of my learned guess, that would be it. Yeah. And I think that's right. And unfortunately, people like to talk about the planes flying out, falling out of the sky. I think you'd need a lot of those before people would really change their view, because there's always going to be some plausible explanation that is not the explanation that's staring you right in the face for medical malpractice, for the collapse of these things. There's always going to be a political incentive to pretend it's something that it isn't. And so you're going to really need to see just incredibly severe mm -hmm. kind of collapse of these systems before they'll kind of break on their own. And and again, if you were to use an ancient Roman sort of metaphor, people have, have argued kind of the Roman Empire sort of was in collapse for multi-hundred years, right, before it finally fell. So as, as Edmund Burke, I believe, said, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. And uh, I think we, unfortunately, if we don't correct, there's quite a bit further that we could fall before we'll really, uh, you know, finally decide that enough is enough. Yeah, you beat me to my favorite black pill quote. Well done. It's, it's a oh. good, good quick draw there. Uh, Thugo says, uh, what would happen if mass numbers of illegal immigrants went to Congo, Sudan or Saudi Arabia? 
Uh, well, I don't think they would get into Saudi Arabia. I don't know that Sudan or Congo has the level of controlled actually <laughs> yeah. with that outcome, but I don't think any of those countries, I think your point is well taken though. I don't think any of those countries uh, would be very, would be very happy for that. And you can tell because a large number, to be clear, a lot of the countries that are involved in this kind of land bridge to the United States, they only allow these people to pass through because they are passing through. They know that they'd have a difficult time stopping a large number of immigrants. And so the deal is basically, well, you can go ahead and get through here as fast as possible. That's the only reason we're going to let you into either side of our border. So I think even the countries in you know through which these migrants flow wouldn't want them to be there. And that the only reason they're allowing to pass through in the first place is that they won't be stopping in, in those countries. Absolutely. And I think the, the the sort of better country to use as an example is China, which lets in just a few thousand immigrants per year. I mean, something ridiculously low. And in fact, I think you could plausibly make an argument that China would be better off, particularly with high skilled immigrants, if it took more. Like to me, China needs more Hong Kongs and more Shanghais with that kind of international city. I mean, I have spent a fair bit of, of time there. And, and it's not, they sort of suffer from being maybe a little bit too closed in. But the point is, nobody is suggesting to China that there's anything wrong or immoral about them having basically a completely closed border. But yet the US is expected to let in millions of illegals every single year, or we're basically committing a crime against humanity. So uh, to call it a double standard is just to drastically understate the case. I mean, it's it's just, it's incredibly uh, insulting, demeaning. It's, it's um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's terrible all the way around. Progressive publications do have to run that piece for Japan every like twice a year though, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like for some reason, Japan does have to open its borders. Like that. Yeah, that at least a little bit. But yeah. even when they do, right, it's only to kind of similarly aligned Asian countries for the most part. Right. And in fact, I just saw there were like some Kurds in Japan causing some riot and everybody was sort of freaking out about it. And they have in general a very low uh, threshold as they appropriately should. I'm not criticizing yeah. them for public disorder uh, and they'll just kick you out. And uh, I totally support that. And I wish we were we were doing the same thing here. I mean, I would love El Salvador level governance in America, let alone uh, Japan level governance, uh, as opposed to what we have here, which is pretty much slow motion, total state failure. Yeah. Isn't that fantastic when you're, when you're wishing for the competence of the El Salvadorian government and your first yeah. world country. Yeah, yeah. Japan, keep the, keep the immigration policy. Just start having sex guys. All right. Uh, right. Tiny Rick again says, Jeremy, you're spot on. I just learned about these ideas from Shelby Steele. Extremely refreshing. DC, someone that looks like me articulating them pro-white does not mean equate to anti-black. Uh, absolutely. And, and Shelby was actually a colleague of mine at my previous gig at the Hoover Institution, although I only uh, had interacted with him a few times, but but a terrific guy who spoke about this, um, these sorts of issues very bluntly. And I, I do kind of want to note, I mean, I think, I don't even know how Shelby would would really categorize himself, I think probably as a conservative, but, but African-American conservatives in particular, they really do sort of get the worst from all... Um, areas. And at the same time, there's some of this patronizing, oh, we're going to put you in front uh, sort of thing that does go on. But but the, the treatment that they often get uh, from the African-American community, and this is true of pretty much all, all minority conservatives to varying degrees, uh, can often be really, really brutal. 
Um, so I'm sympathetic. But yes, I think it's it's important that it's not just Shelby Steele should not be the only person who has uh, the permission to talk about these issues. We need to talk about them themselves, ourselves. We need to not apologize for talking about them. And we need to not apologize for uh, demanding at least equal treatment, hopefully, for a country that was founded by many of our ancestors. Yeah, that's yeah. just bottom line. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for watching. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. I think it was a great discussion. Always a pleasure talking to you guys. Make sure that you check out Jeremy's book. You go ahead and pre-order. Make sure you check out his Substack, his Twitter, all of that great stuff. Of course, if it's, of course, if it's your first time on this channel, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe and turn on the notifications. Click that bell so you can watch these streams when they go live. Also, if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Aura McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do that, leave a rating or review. It really helps with the algorithm magic. Thank you for watching, guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.